Welcome to Chromosphere, the color theory podcast. My name is Ed Charbonneau. I am an artist whose main focus is on painting, and I am also an adjunct faculty member in the Fine Arts Department at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. This podcast presents a series of conversations about color, color usage, and optics as they relate to theories of human color perception in the making of visual art and design. Today I would like to talk about focal points, but this time in terms of chroma and hue contrast, and specifically in relation to a visual phenomenon known as uh, chromostereopsis, chromostereopsis. It's a big, long word. It relates to the chromostereopsic effect. So chromo, related to color, chroma uh, is a Greek word for color. Uh, stere, uh, stereo, stereo, meaning stereo vision or like binocular uh, vision, bioscopic then opsis, optics relating to vision. So color, color stereo vision, basically, and how that itself plays a role in depth perception. Focal points generated by chroma and hue contrasts as it relates to depth perception on a two-dimensional picture plane or other usages but in the visual arts in general. I first learned about this concept under a different name. I went to the Columbus College of Art and Design in 1988 and took color theory classes where they referred to this as scintillating color contrast, scintillating. Uh, Scintillating because if you have, you may have seen colors that fall into this, the more extreme effect of this is when you put them next to each other, the border between them appears to move and dance, and it's difficult to look at it. It can vibrate. Joseph Albers, in his book, uh, The Interaction of Color, referred to pairs of these colors as colors with vibrating boundaries. There's a short page or two on it. And and it can be kind of hard on your eyes to look at for any length of time if it's really, if, especially if the colors are really intense or, well, there's a couple of different ways in which this phenomenon takes place. And the two ways that I'm aware of it, that we learned about it at Columbus, was that if you have two colors that are exactly the same value, this this phenomenon will happen. You place them next to each other, especially if it's like kind of a hard border and not a blended border, but it's, well, it usually is taking place. This effect happens in a more of a hard edge border arrangement, especially the more extreme version of it, where um, if you, like, so for our project at Columbus, we were told to pick a color, like any intense color right out of the tube or whatever you wanted to do, but had it be, but wanted it, they wanted it to be like relatively chromatically saturated and then mix a gray that was the exact 
uh, value of that color that you chose. And then we had to make a painting out of that, those two colors, which was really hard on our eyes. So like a neutral gray, that's the exact same value as any other color. So we were studying great contrasts in uh, chroma, neutral to chromatic, and uh, a low contrast in value. The two colors were the exact same value. The other way that this takes place and that you'll encounter it more frequently is two colors that are far apart from each other on the spectral band, especially if they're very chromatic. So, so yes, so that there's a way of thinking, there's a couple of different ways of thinking about contrast. To me, this idea introduced different ways of thinking about the color wheel in terms of the color band, the band of spectral color, and then the wheel itself. So, on the color wheel, you have red, or like let's say magenta and green are across from each other, right? So those two colors, those two hues are of great contrast. But let's say on the color wheel, magenta and blue are kind of close to each other on the color wheel. So they're not considered colors of great contrast. Whereas if you go to the spectral band of light, you have blue on the one side and violet with the short wavelengths of light and then red on the other side which are long wavelengths of light and so in terms of the spectral band of light blue and red are great contrast and green and red are actually closer to each other less of a contrast and what I've come to think over the years is to, to try not to see those two, the spectral band and the color wheel, as, as different, as distinctly different, which I was taught at Columbus that there's a difference between the additive and the subtractive color mixing and that the two don't really operate together. I found over the years that I don't think that that's true. That'll be another episode because it's a big, long kind of topic. For our purposes today to think about uh, depth perception and these uh, color contrasts, that's where I want to kind of focus on today. So the idea that blue and red are actually very far apart from each other on the spectral band has an effect on when we're creating something visual in the subtractive method of, of printing or, or whatever kind of media that you're using. The way the colors may mix together is subtractive, but the way we perceive them in color vision is through the additive process. So they're inextricably linked in terms of perception, the relationship of perception to mixing and placement. So why am I going on and on about this? So two colors that are far apart from each other on the spectral band, especially if they're relatively intense colors, will have the same effect. Now, recently, that was very noticeable to me. I found lots of examples of this, especially throughout my neighborhood, which is heavily Democratic. Uh, there were a lot of Joe Biden signs during the election process. And if you remember the way that the word Biden was spelled, it had a blue field, a blue background, dark blue, a deep chromatic dark blue, 
with white letters that said Biden, B-I-D, and the N were white, but the E was stylized into three horizontal bands without a vertical thing of the E. And those bands were an intense red. And that chromostereopsis effect was in full effect on those signs because the, the E just kind of like floated in the, in the blue field. And I kind of wanted to call, you know, I don't know what ad agency they worked with. It's probably possible to find out. And I want to email and just say, were you guys aware of this? Was that planned? Or is it, you know, be very curious about that. Um, another, I would say a more frequent thing that I've seen it right uh, these days is the TikTok logo. There's like a pink and a blue on the other side of a, on either side of a white T and those two colors, the way they're behaving, even though they've got the white in between them, they're vibrating in the same effect. And, and although they're, they're more pale, they're not as chromatically intense, they're light in value, the blue and the pink, but it's still, it still happens only to a lesser degree. It's a little easier to look at for a greater length of time. But just looking at the TikTok logo, it does kind of move visually. And I'm sure that that's on purpose. So thinking about that actually just quite recently has made me wonder about further implications this concept could have, this visual effect. Because often it's described as an aberration in terms of like difficulty in looking at. And, but really it's an aberration in terms of uh, the way that, that light is focusing on our on our retinas in each of our eyes, meaning that it's not the same. It's not focusing in the same place on each retina. So it's creating an aberration between the two images that are generated between each of our eyeballs. And then that common signal that's being sent to the brain doesn't add up uh, in a stereo binocular way. And so our minds have to do some guesswork and I don't know if you're like me, but my brain, my brain doesn't do very well with guessing. I'm guessing all the time at whatever's happening. Uh, so how is, this, how is this happening? What does it have to do with anything relevant to art making other than the way Albers spoke about it in the interaction of color was more or less, this is a visual effect that happens. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of cool, but... At the same time, it hurts your eyes after a while. So he kind of veered away from it. It wasn't something that he spent a lot of time with. Whereas he spent 25 years painting squares within squares of different circle, uh, different colors, on exploring the topic of um, simultaneous contrast. That's another episode, too. Um, Chevrolet's first law of simultaneous contrast from the mid to late 1800s is, I believe, when he identified um, uh, that principle, that colors uh, have an effect on each other in perception. The perception of one color 
is dependent on the colors that are nearby and around it. So Albers was way interested in that, and then he kind of had a mention of this chromostereopisis. Thinking about the Biden sign, seeing it, and then seeing the TikTok symbol, and then think, you know, always being curious about it for my time at Columbus, it occurred to me that the extreme effect this, of this visual distortion almost, it's like a, 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 an optical illusion perhaps, is jarring. But could it be that even at lower levels, it still is something that our minds have to grapple with? So it happens very specifically with a very intense red and a very intense blue or a very intense green and a very intense red put right next to each other. And if you Google chromostereopsis, you'll see all sorts of crazy patterns that will make your eyes bug out. But if it's happening on that, is it still happening even when it's very subtle? And therefore, are chromatic contrasts as they relate to the spectral band of color important to consider or relevant to consider while I'm thinking about uh, the composition that I'm making, while I'm thinking about color palette and organization. So that's my question. And the reason I'm talking about it is because I think it is. That's, I, I'll, I'll skip to the end and say I think it is important or it's relevant. What I learned about and what they never taught, taught us down in Columbus, or maybe it just never came up, because we were thinking about it more in terms of um, value contrast, low value contrast, is that it's, it's an effect of depth perception. And then we, it goes to this idea of warm and cool colors and warm colors advancing on the picture plane and cool colors receding into the picture plane, which I had also kind of always had an awareness of from going to art school and, and painting and drawing and but never really quite understood. What it has to do, though, is that, if I'm saying this correctly, the light that enters our eyes through our lenses is focused onto a portion of the retina. But there's a couple of things that happen as the light is making its way, first transversing through the um, lens, which is a term for light moving through an object or a media, so lens. And then there's this liquid within our eyeballs called the vitreous humor. And that liquid itself is a medium. And so when light encounters a medium, it changes speed based on its wavelength and frequency. So wavelength and frequency a light's wavelength and we'll just keep it to blue green and red because those are the pr three primaries of uh, white light and they respond to the blue green and red sensitive cones in our eyes that the blues the relationship between frequency and wavelength are inverted so blues have the shortest wavelength and they have the highest frequency meaning they take the highest amount of energy to move 
if I'm reading this correctly. Whereas reds have the longest wavelength and the lowest frequency, meaning it takes less energy for them to travel a given distance. That is why stoplights are red, is because red wavelengths can travel the furthest through a medium, like the atmosphere, the air, with the lowest amount of energy. So we're much more likely to see a red light from a great distance than if that stoplight was like blue. It takes more energy to push the blue further, and so it runs out of it runs out of gas. And the green is in the middle, so I think that that has to do with that. It's a it's a medium wavelength and a medium uh, frequency. Yeah, and curiously, like the yellow. Well, yellow is an interesting one because yellow in the additive system, yellow is the product of green and red wavelengths. So green and red mix to create yellow and orange. So yellow used as a caution thing, maybe back to the, um, the stoplight. Uh, the stoplight, so yellow for caution. So yellow is, uh, and, and if you think of uh, like a yellow school bus, yellow, there's safety. A lot of the stuff that's in our world in the United States here that OSHA dictates um, colors for is this safety yellow color. And there's an actual designation for the um, school bus. Um, they call it something like school bus yellow. So every school bus in the United States, I think, should be painted the same exact color if they're following the rules. If you think of like uh, yellow cautionary um, like markings on um, stairs or on a curb, it's something that it makes our uh, want to be noticeable, it's because yellow the most noticeable color in our peripheral vision. And the reason it's the most noticeable color is because, and, and especially the school bus yellow, is that it takes an equal amount of vibrations of green and red cones to generate that color in our minds. So therefore, there is that color needs twice the stimulation of cone activity in order for our minds to perceive it. Our minds are getting twice the amount of information than any other color, so therefore it's the most noticeable and hence used as a safety color. Back to chromostereopsis. Stereopsis. Yeah, stereopsis. <laughs> chromostereopsis. See, I keep having a hard time with it. Um, so, Light traveling through a medium, when it encounters different media, it changes speed. Evidently, as light is going through our lenses, it changes speed. And then once it hits the vitreous humor liquid of the eyeball, it changes speed as well. And so different this affects different wavelengths in different ways. And remember, the lens is focusing the light. So because the light changes speed, it focuses at different points, either on the retina directly, in front of it, and also behind it. And this causes this phenomena to happen where our minds have to guess at what is it that we're actually seeing, in terms, especially in terms of edges and borders. Because of 
the images that we're looking at are not entirely 100% focused in one spot. So our minds perceive different colors to be at different distances, even if they're on a two-dimensional picture plane. Hence, blues recede into the distance and reds advance. And depending on the borders, the edges of those forms, they will vibrate against each other more or less in different ways, sometimes in an extreme way and sometimes in a subtle way. Nonetheless, even if it's very subtle, given how color vision seeks to be continually balanced through adaptation, balanced to the available light within the landscape, could a even a subtly perceivable vibration of edge become a focal point or draw the eye in some way because other edges are not. They're just sitting, they're just laying in there. Since considering this, I've, I've, um, well, my wife and I do a lot of gardening. And so right now it's the beginning, it's July 10th in Minnesota. So the garden is in full effect right now. And I've, I've definitely been noticing uh, within the green field of foliage, we've got some pretty intense orange flowers and red flowers happening. And, and even though they're at a great distance, uh, like our yard is fairly large, um, it's like a, a third of an acre, and it's terraced on a, three hills that are going up like a big amphitheater. So we've got these gardens like going all around us. My mission in life is to get rid of all of the grass in my yard. So when we first moved into this house in 2006, it was the house that we looked at with the biggest yard, and I hate mowing like so much, I can't even tell you. My only objective when we were house shopping was to find the house with the smallest yard, and we chose the one with the biggest yard, and it was all grass. And so ever since then, I've been planting gardens, we've been planting gardens, and now it's one-third grass and three-quarters, you know, like 70% gardens. So there's a lot going on out there. But I've definitely been noticing more directly like how these red flowers, even though they might be a couple hundred feet away from me and they're just like these little specks, how they like float in the green field that they're in, the green visual field. And so maybe, maybe check that out and see if you're seeing the same thing as me um, or observing the same thing. Because to me, it's, the more I'm paying attention to it, the more dramatic I'm, it starts, it's, it's getting for me to see. So taking that into consideration when thinking about uh, my color management uh, and palette, I guess you could say, palette, color scheme, and the interactions of color, to borrow Joseph Albers's um, title of his book, I suppose, that interaction, that those kind of relationships and how they work in terms of de actual depth perception, even though it's on a flat plane, it's just something that it, I'm building an awareness of, and it will affect how I'm thinking about uh, color in, in new ways as I'm going forward. That'll wrap it up for today's episode, I think. Um, we talked about 
chromostereopsis, chromostereoptic effect, color depth perception, vibrating edges. We talked about yellow, safety colors, school bus yellow. The name of that color is actually National School Bus Glossy Yellow, or color 13432, according to the General Services Administration of 1939 and the work of a person by the name of Frank Sire, who was interested in school bus safety. He was a rural educator, evidently. And he went around the Midwest, places like Kansas and Nebraska, and studied how school buses were being painted and found that a lot of school boards wanted to paint them red, white, and blue to be patriotic. And he said that that effectively camouflaged the school bus. And he is the one who determined this exact yellow color that stimulates the green and red cones, thus making that particular color the most noticeable in our environment. I'm also reminded in terms of yellow, I just painted my front door yellow, and it's every time I walk out and I catch it out of the corner of my eye, I'm like kind of spooked by this, this incredible color that's it's really a really nice canary yellow kind of color. And I'm wondering, you know, it's also like one of those things where if you've ever painted a room yellow, so this could affect this could explain why you know you might be looking at the chip book and being like all right this color looks great let's go for it and then when you paint the whole room you can't stand being in it because it's just driving your cones like crazy leads me to think back to the the edges that those little chip books the spaces between the colors shouldn't be white i don't think i think they should be gray like a medium to a light gray, something that isn't the same value as the actual colors, but not white. That white causes simultaneous contrast. That's a topic for another thing, maybe. So yellow, chromostereoptic, the color band versus the color wheel and how they work together. I wonder, too, if that has anything to do with why so many flags around the world include red or blue, red and blue, or red and green to perhaps kind of access that stereoptic, uh, chromostereoptic effect, just like the TikToks logo. And if I'm not mistaken, I think I've read that, I think our, the U.S. flag had its origins as a naval flag. That red and blue may have been able to be more noticeable at sea. I don't know, I'll have to look into that. It all comes back to TikTok. <laughs> or, actually, I don't know anything about TikTok. Anyhow, well, we can leave it there for today, and uh, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with your friends and family who may be interested, and follow Chromosphere, the Color Theory Podcast, on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you if you have comments or suggestions. I'd like to thank Jeremy Shapinsky for writing and performing the theme music. Thank you also to Grant Winkles, Susie Manili, and Jeremy Shapinsky again for their production, consulting, and editing.